Welcome into another episode of the Growing Faith Podcast. My name is Rick McClatchy. I'm your host today. Excited to be here with you today as we're jumping into another uh, couple of conversations around the concept of the church as your family. Uh, There's a lot of different ideas out there today about uh, what the church is, what we're all about, why we exist, and um, you know, one of the resounding themes that we see in Scripture uh, is the fact that as the body of Christ, we are to be family with each other, and uh, that there's a ton of beauty, there's a ton of progress and growth that actually comes out of those kinds of relationships. Um, so here at the Growing Faith Podcast, if this is the first time you have tuned in, uh, we exist to really simply uh, bring strengthening and equipping to those in the body of Christ to do the work of the ministry that God has called each and every one of you to do. So uh, with that, uh, we're going to jump into a conversation with my good friend, Jason Johansson, uh, another person I had the privilege of going to Bible college with uh, a few years ago. He is a church planter, a pastor, um, an aspiring author, as uh, he's working on a couple of books as we speak. Super excited to have him here on the program today. So we're going to go ahead and jump into part one of the conversation of the church as family. All right. Well, here we go. Jason Johansson, thanks for uh, joining me here at the Growing Faith podcast. Uh, you know, we've had quite a few conversations leading up to this moment, uh, just starting with the idea of uh, why why the podcast exists. The podcast exists just for, you know, go like all boring Bible on you. And I just always say we want to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry um, in, in the American church, anyways, a big part of, at least where I see a big part of ministry happening, is in the context of small groups and community and relationships. Um, that's something that's a, a deep value of mine, and yet in our, in our conversations, I have found you to really challenge me in the way that I think, in the way that I, uh, even the way I live my life, and some of the boundaries and lines I have neatly drawn in my life. And uh, so I've Actually, been really looking forward to the opportunity for us to sit down and talk through some of these topics. Um, so we're going to dig in probably over the next, I don't know, two, three, 12 episodes. We'll see how it goes um, over the topic of making the church your family. And uh, and I'm excited to jump into this. But I guess before we do that, uh, you know, we went to Bible college together years ago. So that's where we initially crossed paths and... Um, why don't you just give me a little bit of the the Jason Johansson biography? What's your journey been like? Uh, maybe after you graduated PBC, Portland Bible College. We won't even say we won't even say what year it was because then that'll tell people <laughs> how old we are. <laughs> I'm 45. How old are you? 41. 41. 41 yeah. <laughs> At right. the time of this recording. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so where I came from, uh, I grew up here at Manor House. Uh, back then it was Bible Temple. Uh, went through the iteration of City Bible Church, uh, and went went through. I'm I suppose a son of the church. Uh, uh, here with my uh, spent many a holiday on the church property with my grandparents who lived uh, in a house out there on the property for some season. 
uh, was around when the domes were being built and uh, went through, uh, back then, Temple Christian, uh, K through 12. Um, then went on to the Bible College. Um, married my wife out of the Bible College, uh, Kara uh, Gotelli, now Johansson. Uh, from there, we went to Western Seminary, still attending uh, City Bible Church, Manor House. Um, in my late 20s, early 30s, I became a youth pastor at a small Presbyterian church, um, and that was a great sort of uh, exploration into the larger church world uh, that I think was very good for me. Uh, from there, my wife and I moved to Tennessee, and we had every intention of returning to Portland very quickly. Uh, we meant to be in Tennessee for a year, uh, but as God sometimes does, uh, he sort of forced our hand in that. And in spite of ourselves, we ended up in Tennessee for, oh, about 12 years. Uh, and we just returned now. Um, I suppose I should let you know, while we were in Tennessee, we, uh, we were introduced to our children who we adopted there in Tennessee and uh, then planted a church, Grace and Peace Church, um, that's going 10 years strong. And as of uh, late June, they sent us out from there. Uh, and there was a tearful goodbye, but uh, no, no sense that this was anything but God's timing. So uh, we're real happy to be back here at Manor House, uh, which very much feels sort of like a, uh, oh, in, in many ways, a son returning to his mother. Uh, I owe Manor House a great deal, and uh, not least of all that, that here I was born in the faith, and for that matter, my, my dad was born in the faith, and uh, uh, one should always have that certain... Uh, I, I'm glad that I have a place to, to reverence as such. Uh, yeah. That's awesome. I I think that uh, one thing I noted about just your story is something that's been, uh, I think, an important thing to kind of just highlight for people is you mentioned becoming a youth pastor at that Presbyterian church actually was a, a helpful part of kind of your spiritual formation, if you will, um, going to maybe what we might call like another stream of church, much, another, yeah. you know, another, uh, part of Christendom and how, um, I had a little bit of the same kind of experience. I grew up in a church that was like basically a, a sister church of Bible temple. And so we were very much same type of flavor and, uh, style and all that kind of stuff. And, and certainly the same stream of theology. Um, and, and I think, uh, one important thing just to note, I guess for, you know, small group leaders and just people that are, you're in the pews of the church, it's, you know, it's actually good to read a number of different, uh, you know, authors and get a, get a, a broad, uh, perspective of church, uh, because sometimes, at least from my personal experience, uh, I had some really good foundation built in me, but it was so limited. I had some like, I, I feel like I had some like weak points sure. that ended up being kind of shored up as I was uh, exposed, you know, we'll say like a more, more reform theology. I got, sure. I got introduced to some more, uh, to some preachers that were more of the reformed theology. And, and I feel like it kind of balanced me out more. It didn't throw me, oh, to the other side of that theological spectrum, but more of being able to find kind of I don't know, for lack of a better term, kind of a middle ground where I felt more balanced. I felt more secure almost in my faith. And so, um, I don't know, I just thought that was interesting that it, you had kind of a part of your journey that was a little bit, a little bit like that as well, yeah. where yeah. you go into another stream of churches and, um, and it actually 
um, increased you. It didn't uh, diminish what God was doing oh, in so your life. Yeah. Yeah. Western Seminary, which is yeah, predominantly Baptist, not exclusively, and they're very uh, hospitable to, to non-Baptists among them, Charismatics and Pentecostals and so forth. Uh, that was a great place for me to uh, butt my head up against uh, what I believed about the Holy Spirit, for instance. And I learned and studied and uh, gave myself to sort of who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit is at that Baptist uh, institution in a way that I probably never would have otherwise. Uh, mm. And there's things like that. There's uh, learned a great deal from the liturgy of the Presbyterian Church. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. There's plenty of things I learned that I didn't like, but... but uh, <laughs> right, yeah. A lot of good things, too. You're, yeah, totally. <laughs> Everybody has their their strong points and their weaknesses, and, and it's good that God brings all these things together to form the family of God, right? And so that's a perfect segue, Rick. Good job in building job. a beautiful segue into the conversation. So as we want to jump into this topic of making the church your family, um, that's an interesting topic to try to open up in in American culture. I feel like uh, that's very countercultural. It's not really the way culture flows. Um, not really how we're raised. Yeah. And so um, what I guess my, my lead-in question then would be like, Jason, walk me through what what happened in your life that began you on this journey to kind of discover what it means to make the church your family and, and how that happens and what it looks like. And, and like I said, we'll probably go multiple episodes to kind of dig into this, but um, what was the what was the journey that led into this yeah. process? Um. I have to say, that, uh, to give credit where credit is due, uh, Bible Temple certainly put me in the mindset that the church, that we have a certain responsibility to the church, uh, and that the church is the center of what God is doing in the world. Uh, and as I went to seminary and then went to other churches, uh, this was not always clear to everybody else. Um, and sometimes it struck me. Uh, even the institutions of how we train pastors, uh, how they often, you know, you, you, you send them up somewhere else, uh, they leave their church family, go learn how to be a pastor in relative isolation, sitting in a classroom setting. Uh, it seems sort of funny. Uh, uh, but for that matter, the way we, the way we uh, folks will pick up and move for the purpose of education, for the purpose of a job, um, and the question of church loyalty is, you know, it's just sort of assumption that we can just go find another church somewhere else. Um, and so these things always struck me. Um, I, can, I can say that my wife and I, pretty early on in our marriage, um, even before our marriage, we had experience in the foster care system, um, working with uh, kids and adults in state custody, um, working with kids who uh, have behavioral issues. Uh, and this sort of showed us a need that there was, um, well, there's just hundreds and thousands of unwanted children um, looking for a place to be. Uh, I can't say that we felt a special call, a uh, whisper of God's voice in our ears saying, and you're uniquely called to this. Uh, I just think that we sort of had this sense that there was this great need and those who are capable of uh, sharing that need should do so. Um, we also had enough experience to know, and I, I should add that my, my parents had a foster kid for us for a season of time. 
um, through Urban Progress, which was a ministry of uh, City Bible back in the day. Um, and as our experience taught us that, that this is a, a difficult task, um, that these kids have been through a certain kind of trauma, um, even in the best case, the trauma of just being picked up out of the home of your origin. Um, and that taught us, at the very least, that we could not do this by ourselves. I don't know that any parent can raise their kids well by themselves, although uh, the American, that's sort of, again, like Rick mentioned, uh, like he said, it, it sort of teaches us we can. Um, but we're not, we're not, a single mother and a single father are not capable of uh, being everything that kids need. Um, in particular, kids who've gone through the trauma of foster care. And so we had at least the humility to say, well, we could do this, but we can't do this without a good bit of help. Um, and of course, with the, what, what I knew largely taught from Bible Temple uh, was that the church is that place that we can best receive help um, to do the things that God has called us to do. Uh, and so we sort of began to think in terms of the church as something bigger, something that could help us in, our, in the practical struggle of actually raising kids. Now this was, I don't know, five or ten years before we even had kids. Um, that we're thinking on these lines. So we just sort of watched and waited, um, uh, attending other churches um, at times and, and sort of wondering, is this a place that can help us? And uh, unfortunately, we, we, we attended churches where that just wasn't the case, where we um, did not believe we could receive the kind of help that we would need to foster kids in a healthy and sustainable way. Um, I can think of another point at which I really got thinking about the church as our family, the family of God. Um, it was about early 2000s, 2005, 2006. You could look at the calendar and figure it out when Christmas fell on a Sunday. Um, and I remember thinking about how, uh, well, I, I, churches started canceling services. Um, and it was on the news. And the newscasters went to Multnomah Bible College at the time. I think it was Multnomah Bible College, not yet university. Uh, and I remember they spoke to a theologian there, um, Paul Metzger, I believe. And he, in front of the, you know, the Portland news camera, said something to the effect of, you know, that the, that the church, I'm sorry, the church has believed um, early on that the, temp, that the family can be a temptation um, towards idolatry. Um, and he began to talk like this, where the family, he said, could be a temptation towards um, leading us away from our church family, um, that these things can vie for our uh, loyalties. And that, too, was a, a thought that I don't think I'd really contemplated. Um, but I began to think about that. I began to think about uh, Christmas time um, and how churches were canceling services in large part out of deference for families who had a lot of plans and had uh, you know celebrations to do and things like this. Um, and that makes a certain kind of sense. Uh, but then I began to think about the people I knew who did not have uh, a large biological family, people who had difficult family lives, people who um, maybe in giving themselves to the church and to Christ, they had to break away from their family, uh, that their family really was a temptation away from Christ. And I began to think about what those folks uh, did on Christmas Day. Uh, and I began to think about uh, others throughout church history uh, who on Christmas Day were wandering and alone and had no place to call home. Uh, for instance, Mary and Joseph. Uh, and where they would have been, uh, uh, you know, if the church doors were not open. Mm. Um, and so this, again, 
prompted me to think and go back to Scripture and say, what does Scripture teach about the church? And when it says that we are a family, uh, the household of God, the family of God, does it mean that as a metaphor? Uh, does it mean that? Does it mean for us to take it seriously? And what are the repercussions of that? So, <clears throat> on that note, I remember uh, this is kind of a. And even though I'm like the community guy, you know, like you talk to anybody at Rocky Butte, if you talk about small groups, you talk about people connecting, they'll probably tell you like, "Oh, Rick, you want to go talk to Rick? Like he's the guy that's going to help you do that." Um, but I remember just it being maybe, maybe two, three years ago at the most, I, I went and heard a guy speak and he was talking about, uh, pastor Paul. And I, I didn't really like think one thing or another about the topic, but he starts talking about how the number one way that Paul, uh, referenced the people in the churches that he wrote to was as brothers and sisters. Yeah. And he started to dig into what is what is the significance of that reference, and to even to begin to talk about the cultural the cultural differences between uh, what what a brother and a sister was in that culture where he was writing to versus American culture, Western culture yeah. today. Um, you know, would you have any like things you want to drop in on that topic? To just, sure. as we kind of build, obviously we don't want to just build on this idea because, well, Rick and Jason think it's a great idea, <laughs> so, you know, but like that we're, we're basing this on what, what scripture has to say and that, that maybe we're trying to like bump people in the direction of doing something more in line with what God would have us to do. Yeah. Um, the, this is the the trick of talking about the church like a family. Uh, one, well, I, I just did it myself, uh, like a family. Uh, <laughs> the first misstep I think we can get into is that, uh, and this is, we, we create these buffers, uh, Rick. I think that we, oh, uh, these means that we have whereby we can separate ourselves from the difficult teachings of Christ in Scripture. Um, Soren Kierkegaard, who you caught me reading the other day, has this um, has this point at which he talks about you know how we create these buffers, these blockades. Uh, he says it's very much like a young boy who stuffs napkins down his pants uh, before he's getting a spanking, uh, so as to protect himself from the full repercussions of his behavior. Uh, so we do this, I think, with scripture in numerous and varied ways. Um, in terms of family, in terms of all the many scriptural passages, which you're right, scripture is just hundreds of times, talks about, that's Paul's preferred way of speaking to the church as brother and sister in Christ. Uh, but as brother and sister, uh, Paul did not make this stuff up. He picked that up from what Christ was saying, of course. Uh, and you get these many times in Scripture where Christ says these things that are just painful for us to hear, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in terms of American family values, where we have this baseline assumption that um, the best thing we can do for our families is be a Christian. Um, this was not the case of the early church. Um, Christ warned his followers that that he would bring a sword uh, between father and mother, brother and sister. Uh, he warned his father, his followers that uh, their families would reject them and turn them over to be persecuted. Uh, you have that very troubling sort of instance where Jesus's family thinks he's crazy and they worry about him. At least in Mark's version, they 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 think he's crazy, uh, and they worry about him. So they go to sort of fetch him, to find him and, and get him to quit making an embarrassment of himself and the family. Um, 
And his disciples, who he's sitting there teaching, they say, hey, listen, Jesus, your brother and your mother, your brothers and your mother are outside and they want to talk to you. And Jesus looks at them, doesn't bring his parent, his mom in, uh, but in the, presumably in the hearing of Mary and his brothers, said, who are my brothers and sisters? And he looks at his disciples and he says, you are. Uh, those who do the will of my father are my brothers and sisters and my mother. Uh, imagine being Mary and having to hear that. Uh, this is not, and it remains a slightly scandalous today. Um, our family does not always like hearing that we have other family members, um, particularly when you take those words seriously and you enact them in practical ways. Um, for instance, who you invite over to Christmas or what you do during Easter. Uh, it can still be a scandal, as it should be. Uh, uh, what did you ask? Where... where uh, how, how that's different th than today. Um, uh, different than today, uh, the other place, I suppose, is that we say, we protect ourselves from these things, and we say um, the church is like a family. Um, I think in the, in the New Testament, they said what they meant, and they meant what they said, and they said that the church is a family, um, that you are the household of God, and the language of brother and sister was not metaphorical. Uh, it was quite literal. Uh, well, the whole premise of us coming to Christ is adoption, right? Yeah. So we're being adopted into a spiritual family, and that's not metaphorical. Yeah, and I'd even cut off, you know, the, the, the language of spiritual family, I think, okay, is something fine. that I know I do too. <laughs> uh, I was stuffing something. <laughs> uh, we get stuck in this thing where it's just, we default into, yeah. you know, the church is like a family. Uh, I can, yeah. Uh, but when you push in and you say, what did they actually believe? Uh, it's never that the church was like a family, and certainly not that the church is like our family. Um, because there was the honest acknowledgement that our families have some great things that they've given us and offered us, but there's also some horrible things that families do uh, and some negative things and some, uh, uh, and those things are not ways that the church is like our family. In fact, we cannot fully appreciate what the family should be and could be ex except when we learn it at church. And then we can go back and be brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in the way that God originally intended. Uh, uh, what were you saying about well, I was, it was interesting um, in the conversation, he began to ask, like, in American culture, I'll just say American culture, maybe not pulling the whole Western thing, but what is the pinnacle, the pinnacle relationship? If you're to think of like the closest, the person you would give uh, everything yeah. for in American culture, that's your spouse, right? Like we, we think that is like the pinnacle, the top of the mountain, and and then maybe your kids, right? Yeah. So like your your spouse and then your kids, um, and and yet if you look through history, go going back closer to when the New Testament was written, there are real life stories and then you know stories that were written that would confront that idea where uh, sure. <laughs> spouses chose their sibling over over their husband in a war, like they sure. And, yeah, you're talking about that book, uh, When the Church Was a Family. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what is his name? Oh, shoot, man. You would, I'll, we'll put, I'll put it in the show notes, okay. and so that way I don't have to be... So Scott McKnight uh, yeah. and his book, Pastor Paul, 
is uh, one of the books I've been referencing. I'll put the notes of that one in the show notes as well. I might reference uh, Soren Kierkegaard. I'm not sure. We'll, no, I'll no, have no, to get that no, information that. from you. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the, the church, the, the ways that we are not like the church, our family units, um, back in the day, of the, in the day of the early church, um, there was no common word for just family as a nuclear family. Uh, the family was more or less an oikos, a household. Uh, oikos being the word for house, or oikos, uh, household. Uh, and that household included multi-generations, included parents, including kids, included uh, siblings. Uh, if a sibling fell on hard times, they would naturally return to uh, and reconnect with their siblings. Uh, parents, of course, the, the uh, lifespan was short. Um, so siblings could not necessarily assume that they would have parents who would uh, uh, be around indefinitely. Um, and so this, again, you know, sort of encouraged the um, dependence upon siblings. Um, a household might include, goodness, it includes slaves. It included uh, sometimes people you worked with, your employees. Uh, uh, but it was a much larger unit than what we call the nuclear family. Um, you mentioned it, that kids today, the sort of family life tends to circle around cute, uh, beautiful little kids. Um, <laughs> and they are cute and they are beautiful, and that's a wonderful thing. Uh, but this was not the way in the ancient world. Um, uh, kids were more or less a burden until they were grown up. Again, this is not necessarily the way it should be. Uh, but a family that revolved around their kids was dysfunctional. Um, and it probably threatened their livelihood. Um, you could not afford to... Uh, let your life revolve around your kids until they were of such an age that they could start helping you earn and make money. Um, oh, the idea that you would pick up and move away from your parents. Um, today, that's the sort of job of the parent to make kids independent so that they can someday, you know, maybe sooner than later, uh, get out of the house and go off on their own. Um, in the ancient world, this would have been a great offense to, at the age of 18, say, okay, I'm ready to do my own thing. Um, think of the story of the prodigal son and how offensive it was that he wanted to leave his father's household. Um, so, again, this is the, the point is that we cannot just assume, well, the church is like my family. Um, and I think when we say that, we also sort of assume the church should be like the best parts of my family. The church, <laughs> we don't think of the hard things. Uh, you know, the church should be like my family when we go to Disneyland and we celebrate Christmas together. Um, the church should be like my family when we're all getting along. Um, the church should be like my family when we all sort of look the same, act the same, and we all take the same cues, and so we're all on the same page. Um, there are some very distinctive ways that the church is not like our family. Uh, uh, again, the church, what the church should do as a family is broaden our perspective of what it means to be a family. Uh, this theologian, Stanley Harawas, talks about how the, the uh, early church, uh, unique to both religions then and now, um, understood that conversion, not reproduction, was the means by which to expand the church. Uh, he also talks about adoption rather than uh, reproduction being the means by which the church expanded. Uh, and what this means is they had a place for singles. Um, they could incorporate singles into the church. It means that they could um, adopt children uh, in a way that, whereas the, the rest of the culture was leaving children by the hillside, abandoned to, to sort of starve or get picked up by wolves or slave traders. Uh, but the early church understood that those who make up the church are not necessarily those who look, sound, talk, uh, etc., just like us. Um, 
it's made up of those who confess faith in Christ and who are born again by the Holy Spirit and adopted into God's family. And so this blew open the doors of what it means to be a family. Um, and it should still, still do the same. Uh, it, you can forget about homogeneity, homogeneity uh, any longer. Um, it's not always had the effect that it should. It didn't always teach us what it should have, for instance, about slave trading and racism and things like this, um, but it has the potential to do so. So, <clears throat> what do you think are some of the reasons, what are some of the reasons why we should wrestle? I mean, because you are making me a little uncomfortable, all right? I mean, just in this conversation about the church being my family, that that means I'm going to lose some level of control here. I'm going to lose some level of autonomy. I'm going to sure. I'm going to lose some things in this process. Obviously there are things to be gained, but it's also risk, right? I think about uh, CS Lewis's uh, comment about love, right? Like you can you can build up, you know, your walls because you don't want to be hurt. And you can basically fortress yourself away, safely uh, insulated from any possible, I am butchering this quote, by the way, but thoroughly insulating yourself from any possible pain. And you'll find yourself securely locked away in your own coffin, you know, like, yeah. and, and it'll be a silent, painless, yeah. uh, or well, painful in some ways, painless in another death, right? Because... And you'll, you'll accomplish it. Like, you won't get hurt, but you also won't experience yeah. love. That love in, in and of itself is is risk, right? And yeah. God is God's a perfect example of what, what love costs and what the risk is. And so, boy, if God didn't spare his own self the pain of the journey of loving us then who are we to yeah. think who are we to think that our journey of loving one another is going to be painless either or yeah and so what what are the main things you think that keep us from having uh right perspective in regards to being more family as a church um you know the 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 fact, America is just uniquely individualistic. Um, ever since the modern age, uh, we have been taught that religion is something that the individual must sort of decide on, that it's not inherited through family. Uh, and there's some good things about that, uh, but there's some also really bad things about that. Uh, it becomes up to each individual to invent their own view of God. Um, we are uniquely, of all cultures of the world, uh, imagine that we are self-defining. Uh, we create ourselves. Uh, we dream a dream and become it. Uh, if we could, we'd, you know, we, we imagine that we save ourselves and baptize ourselves and everything else, and it's just me and God. Um, I think of that, uh, oh, the apostle with uh, Robert Duvall. And there's that great scene where yeah. he, he commits some great sin. He, I believe he kills somebody. Uh, but then he repents, and he goes out by a river, and it's just him, and he baptizes himself. Um, we all we do we imagine this though it seems ridiculous to see but we imagine that God confronted us by ourselves alone and we invent our relationship with God in some way shape or form uh, but the fact is that as I mean Paul puts it how will they know unless they hear uh, unless somebody tells them uh, we are so dependent upon one another 
for our most basic substance. Uh, oh, so there's, there's one, I've heard an old saying that we wouldn't even know who our father is except we believe our mother. Uh, just these basic things, uh, these stories of where we come from, depend upon the word of somebody else. Uh, we imagine in America that this is not so, that we're self-authenticating and self-creating. Uh, we imagine, I mean, think of it in terms of our spiritual gifts. We imagine that we can make these up and figure them out on our own. Or perhaps we can take a test in the isolation of our living room and figure them out. Uh, this would have seemed absurd to the early church. Uh, that we figure out who we are in the body of Christ. Uh, with those who have the, the maturity, um, the aptitude can help us figure out who we are. Um, so anyways, America is uniquely, Americans are uniquely sort of susceptible to this An interesting, idolatry. I don't mean to interrupt, but I'm going to interrupt don't. is I was actually just thinking about how we're created in the image of God and God is a triune being, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit, perfect community, perfect loving community from eternity past, you know, on forever. And we're created in, in his image, which means we're we're actually not created to be by ourselves. We're not created to be a solely independent individual. But I was just referring like where you're talking about discovering our spiritual gifts on our own. So many of these things that we, uh, or like going on a backpacking trip in the mountains of, you know, wherever, uh, in the Rocky Mountains to try to find yourself is an interesting American concept, you know, like, Hey, go out on your own and try to find yourself, try to understand who you are when maybe a more biblical approach would be you actually discover who you are, one, by understanding who God is, but also like in the context of Christian, of, of the family. Oh, sure. Uh, I think, I mean, we can give numerous examples. Uh, I think of young couples who, uh, they were about to get married. And I remember one in particular, and they were thinking about, they had a cabin out in the woods and some sort of job they could do via distance. And so they thought, this would be a great idea. I'm going to spend, we're going to spend the first year of our marriage uh, in this sort of cabin out in the woods, more or less by ourselves with the occasional visitor. But it's just, it's just my wife and I, and we can then just sort of give ourselves to get to know each other. And they went to various folks in various churches and got advice about this. And everybody said, that's a great idea. You can just immerse yourself in each other's love. Uh, I'm being facetious, but you know. Uh, and at one point, I, was, I, I think I was teaching a class, and they got the impression that perhaps I would be a different voice in that matter. And so they came to me, and they said, well, here's our thought. We're going to go, and we're thinking about living in this cabin off by ourselves. And I said, that's a horrible idea. That's a horrible idea. To, that what, what you're going to default to, uh, because we're not self-inventing. You're just going to default into the mores and manners that you've learned. Uh, you're going to default into the roles that you watch on TV. Uh, you're going to default into what you already know, into your worst habits. Uh, what you should do is you should spend that first year around people who you see have awesome marriages. And you should just hang out with them. And during this first very formative year, you should pick up some habits that will be sustaining for you for the rest of your marriage uh, and help you figure out who you're going to be. Give yourself some positive peer pressure because if you don't, you're just going to default to whatever you watch on TV or the latest romantic comedy you're watching. Uh, 
Now, I don't know what they decided. I sure hope that they didn't go off to the woods. But It's interesting that you use that example because um, my first year of marriage would actually um, be a perfect uh, proof text in a sense for that, for what you just said. Because I, I tell people all the time, no, small groups, being a part of a small group in my church actually saved my marriage before my marriage, uh, before it was understood that my marriage needed saving in a sense <laughs> where... Um, I had some totally wrong expectations and understanding of what life was supposed to look like. So when I got married and it didn't match yeah. my expectations, I immediately put the disappointment of that situation squarely in the lap of my wife. Like it was her fault that my life wasn't looking the way I expected it to. But then we went to our small group and just in normal fellowship, not even like going and specifically asking for help, but in just normal conversation with other men who were married, uh, it became very clear that the things I thought were just bizarre things about my wife turned out to just be uh, normal things that women, <laughs> yeah. the normal differences between a man and a woman. And, um, and I began to understand, oh, Oh, okay. I had wrong understanding of how life actually is and how it's going to look. And it actually completely changed my perspective and allowed me then to grow yeah. <laughs> and change and surrender some things. And, yeah. and so, yeah. And we do that spiritually. I mean, marriage is a good example, but we do that on my, my personal relationship with Christ. As you mentioned, we, we imagine that the best place to nurture that is in the isolation of the forest somewhere. Uh, or in our prayer closet. And I don't mean to de denigrate uh, praying privately, uh, but corporate prayer uh, was understood as the priority in the early church. Uh, the idea that we could grow up without a family uh, is a crazy thing to think about. Um, but this is how the American church tends to think about it, that, that the best place for my spiritual formation is in private devotions, private prayer, private reading. Uh, that we read scripture best by ourselves. Uh, to begin to think in those terms, and this is perhaps for another conversation, but uh, to think about doing those things in the context of a family um, with those who are less mature than us and those who are more mature than us and those who have a wide variety of experiences and those who, uh, when we're our thinking gets askew, they can sort of put us back on track and say, no, you know, that's... That's, we've all gone through that. Um, that's a normal part of the marriage process, or that's a normal part of uh, doubt in one's faith. Uh, uh, to be left to those things in isolation is, is uh, well, it's, it's uh, hell in a certain sense. Uh, isolation is that sort of, that place where we, we, we lack community. Uh, and yet, very often, that's how we understand our, our spirituality in, in America, at least. It's interesting that one of the, you know, highest forms of punishment in a sense they can give prisoners is a solitary confinement, right? So yeah. it's not just being locked up and losing uh, freedom to go about and do what you want to do, but then it is being completely by yourself in that process. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is the this is the irony of um, this is the irony of how we think about and very often practice our Christian faith today, uh, is that Christ, that God from the beginning was about this project of creating families, of calling a people. Uh, 
that the language is always and so often just corporate. And you even, um, even some of our translations of scripture, you get uh, where we sort of Westerners read certain things and we kind of skew it towards um, uh, the individual. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Uh, when in, act in actuality, for instance, it's if, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Um, or just the exclamatory, if anybody is in Christ, new creation, this thing that God's doing in the world, um, and we're a part of it. Uh, but our sort of Western individualistic eyes, we have a hard time seeing that. Uh, C.S. Lewis was a good one. He would talk about, I think it's The Great Divorce, where he sort of gives this picture of hell. And at the outskirts of hell is individuals, and they just sort of push out further and further on uh, because they can't stand being around other people because other people tell them, no, that's not so. And they say, well, it's not my fault. And other people say, well, yeah, it was, actually. Uh, <laughs> and on the furthest corners of hell, uh, there is Napoleon, and he stands pacing back and forth, talking about whose fault it is this and whose fault it is that. Uh, and, of course, his picture of heaven is this place where uh, we're greeted by uh, not only God, but those who are also beloved to us, uh, uh, a much larger community. Uh, this is that picture that, uh, really a formative text for me, uh, that picture of the rich young ruler, where Jesus comes to him, I'm sorry, he comes to Jesus, if you recall, and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him, and he says he loved him. Uh, and he says, well, you know, you, you need to obey the laws of God, obey the commandments. And he says, I've done all these things. And Jesus says, one more thing I, I require of you, sell all you have and give it to the poor. Uh, and we tend to think of those things abstractly, of course. Uh, but I think what Jesus meant was he's looking around, and he's sitting there, and here is the poor around him. And we'll get there in a minute, how, how this was almost certainly the case. Uh, which he wasn't saying, sell everything and just be a rambling, uh, uh, you know, just alone, uh, isolated individual. He's saying, sell everything you have, give it to these poor, um, and join me and follow me, he says. And the rich young ruler went away sad, and Jesus was sad for him. Uh, and Jesus says, you know, it's, it's more difficult for a rich man to get into heaven than the camel through the eye of a needle. And we tend to stop there. And this is, an, again, perhaps another place where we kind of buffer ourselves um, from the spanking that Scripture would give us. Uh, and Peter says, and if you keep reading, Peter says, but look, Jesus, we gave everything. We did it. Uh, we gave everything to follow you. What do we get? And you would think that Jesus would give him a spanking right there. And Jesus would say, shame on you, Peter. Why are you asking what you get? And who do you think you are that you've given everything? Uh, but Jesus doesn't argue with him. Jesus agrees that, yeah, you have given, uh, you have left. Uh, I think that's how Peter puts it, is we've left uh, everything to follow you. And Jesus says, uh, listen, those who have left father and mother, brother and sister, uh, and possessions and land for my sake, will receive more, tenfold, I forget how many he says, tenfold, hundredfold, father and mother, brother and sister, lands and possessions. And then he, he, makes a, he sort of emphasizes both in this life and the next, and with them persecutions, he adds. Um, but his point is that, yeah, we give away, um, and we run the risk of sacrificing all these things, uh, our biological family to some extent, or at least it threatens that. Um, certainly we give away our possessions, but in the church, in the family of God, uh, at our disposal now is a hundredfold 
brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. fathers and mothers, and possessions and land in this life and the next. Uh, and this has this astonishing ability then to set us free to really follow Christ. Uh, uh, it's, it's, I, I have to imagine, Rick, that the part of the reason that we, oh, that we sort of second guess and question um, a good many of Christ's commands is that we imagine we have to do them all by ourselves. And he never meant for us to. Mm. And he gave us this church with a world of resources that sets us free to do these radical things uh, in following him. Uh, And to do them in a way that is sustainable and in a way that is healthy, in a way that the world can look on and say, that's astonishing. Um, Mm. But insofar as we try to do them by ourselves, we're we're bound to fail. Uh, We can only do them together. So you see scriptures that say, like, by your love for one another, will they know that you're my disciples? <clears throat> yeah. We we even read that through like a an American individualistic type of frame, but I think it starts to it begins to make more and more and more sense as you just framed it in the way that you did. That we're able to really, I mean, solve a lot of problems, meet a lot of needs in ways that don't burn people out, overly consume people, because everybody's giving what they have. Yeah. Um, so some of the, some of the barriers that we face to do this journey of living as a family, um, being a family is the cultural. And I think that can hardly, I don't know that it can be overstated the level and the depth and pervasiveness of that one fact alone. Uh, probably, uh, it's, there's probably some self-centeredness, you know, that, just our, our indwelling sin in our hearts that, you know, we don't want to give up our independence. We don't want to lose control. Um, probably uh, fear. There's some fear that comes into that. Um, and then uh, also, and, and then I think part of the, the solution would be Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You know, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and don't lean on your own understanding but in all your ways, you know, acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths in, in that sense of being able to trust the Lord that, that that scripture that you just mentioned, that those that give these things up, they, they do receive it back. So it's, and you, but you receive it back in different ways and ways that oh, yeah. don't, aren't necessarily the way you want them, right? Because yeah. sometimes your kid asks you for something but you know if you give them the thing they're asking for, it will crush them. It will hurt them. Yeah. You, your goal as a loving father is to give your kids the things they need, not always the things that they want. Yeah. And with them, persecutions. And with these things, you get persecutions. Uh, now, the interesting thing is that, again, the, the early church, in a way, took this seriously in a way that we say, well, the church is like a family. And they just said, no, the church is a family. We're going to take Jesus at his word. Uh, and the, the, those resources were not uh, a means by which we could now just sort of um, wallow in our wealth and our newfound uh, inheritance. Those resources were a means whereby the church could serve the world and uh, lay down their life for the world, just like Christ laid down his life for us. Uh, and you get this impression that, that well, Acts 2 and Acts 4, um, where they don't just sort of say, no, you're kind of like a family, and so you should sort of be nice to each other. Um, the, the, the troubling thing for us today is that they actually did it, and they actually started behaving like a family. 
Um, and this has always been interesting for me as a, sort of, uh, a Pentecostal charismatic, um, that in Acts 2, you get the sort of outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, and the Spirit is poured out, and it concludes with uh, the end of chapter 2, is that they shared all things in common, and they daily met for the breaking of bread, and they shared the table with each other, and so forth. Um, and then Acts 4, you get another sort of instance, some call that a second Pentecost, uh, wherein the Spirit falls, the ground shakes, and how does chapter 4 end? They shared all things in common, and so on and Sold so forth. Their property. Yeah, yeah. And there was none among them that had any need. Yeah, and they have this story of, uh, oh shoot, not Nicodemus, but... Um, Ananias and Ananias Sapphira. Uh, yep, and the uh, the other guy who sold all his... Oh, sold Stephen. Was it... Uh, Look at us, a couple of Bible scholars. I know, right? Uh, Acts 4. I just Sold his read. land. Uh, and sold his yeah. property. Uh, but the point being, let me know when you find it. I will. You just keep talking and... I'll butt in here in just a second. Please do. The point being, though, that that when the Spirit was poured out, they started acting like a family. And we have to, we sort of, you know, here, well, they, they broke bread and they shared table. Um, but Joseph, a, also called Barnabas. Okay. He's the guy. So, in a pre, uh, in a barter economy, um, that wasn't fully, there was currency there, but they were more or less a barter economy. And on a subsistence economy, where your daily bread is what you work for that day. To share table is your most basic means of sharing possessions. Um, the early church, when you sit around the table, it's more or less meant the same thing that we mean it to mean, which is families eat together. Uh, when the early church celebrated communion, you get a glimpse of this in Corinthians. They didn't just pass around a piece of bread and, and a cup of wine, although they did that. Uh, it was followed by a full meal. Uh, and this continued into the early church. Uh, Chrysostom talks about how after uh, they take the bread and the wine, it's then followed by a meal, and this is a relief to the poor, and it brings humility to the rich to have to sit at the table, uh, as Christ mm -hmm. taught, with those of a variety, of, with their slaves and with, you know, the day laborers and uh, with the wide variety that was made up in the church. Uh, they, my point is simply just that they acted like a family. Um, and this is, and they had a hard time doing it sometimes too, right? Like yes. James, James two, like, hey, quit showing, quit showing partiality, quit being super nice to the rich guy, yeah, and dumping on the poor guy, you know, and yeah, it wasn't seamless, and uh, you know, as individualistic as we are, there was numerous faults um, in the family systems that made up the early church, uh, such that they too had to be reformed. Um, that Paul had to scold the Corinthians about how they eat. Because uh, they were doing it wrong, um, that, that you know Christ was not, not celebrated in the way they shared mm -hmm. communion. Um, so yeah, I don't mean to idealize the that culture. I don't think problems. you were. I just think it's always helpful to point it out. Like we're not looking at people that just executed it perfectly right. and like let's be like them. It's like no, it, there was struggle there. There was pain. There was growth. There was adjustment. There was yep. by the power of the Holy Spirit that this thing even happens, right? Because without without Christ, I think we're just all self-centered <laughs> messes of people <laughs> well that's so. true that's true <laughs> ask ananias and sapphire how it worked out yeah exactly so awesome well i think that's probably a good place for us to uh to put a a, a close down on today's conversation as we've kind of nicely set the table uh with plenty of things to make you feel uncomfortable to challenge our way of thinking and how Maybe we've always maybe we've always looked at church a certain way. Maybe we've always processed our relationship with God a certain way. And I think that 
um, these things, though, uh, <laughs> maybe I'm the only one that it makes uncomfortable, but though it makes us uncomfortable, but it puts us in a place where we're like, man, uh, this, this means some things might need to change. I think for us to be equipped to do the work of the ministry, to be people in the church that do the work of the ministry, that look out for widows and orphans and those kinds of things, I think these are the kinds of uh, wrestlings we need to do. These are the kinds of mindsets we need adjusted, um, values that we need changed. And so um, I hope you'll take time uh, today, tomorrow, the next week, the, the next 10 years of your life, and just begin to allow uh, the truth of Scripture and uh, the Holy Spirit to just come and work on your heart uh, for the areas in your life where uh, maybe you're maybe you're too separate, maybe you're too individualistic. I mean, uh, I mean, I got ooh, <laughs> I got plenty of work myself, uh, plenty of areas of my life where I'm like, oh Lord, help me to be uh, more more generous, more open, more shared, more uh, because I really believe that it's in those places where we see the real beauty of the gospel, the real beauty of God's work in us and through us. And so Jason, thanks so much for your time today. Um, I think this is a really interesting and fun uh, adventure into this conversation. So with that, um, we'll go ahead and, uh, and wrap it up and we'll pick you up next time in the next episode. God bless you guys. There you go. That wraps up the Church as Family Part 1. I hope you can join us next episode as we continue this conversation with my good friend Jason Johansson. Um, hope you've benefited from today's conversation. Uh, it is, to me, a, a deep conversation and a challenging one, but a super helpful one. Um, if the Growing Faith Podcast is helping you these days, I would love it if you'd go to wherever you're accessing your podcasts and uh, give us a rating. Uh, go ahead and give us a review and um, and share it. Share it with, uh, pick two or three people today that you think would benefit from hearing this episode or one of our many other episodes that we have on so many of the different topics that we've covered and, uh, and share it with them and just help us get the word out about what we're doing here at the Growing Faith Podcast. As always, if you'd like to reach out to me, you can connect with me at growingfaithpodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you, ideas for future podcast topics. Um, we are just uh, here to serve you. And with that, I just say a big hearty God bless you and have the most amazing day.